What is crackalacking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you solo today because we had a podcast scheduled with a guest. Won't spoil them because I plan on having them back, but there were technical difficulties. Couldn't get their service to work. They were coming at me from an NBA arena. So we pivot, but fear not, I am caffeinated, having listened to lots of emo punk before recording this podcast and doing some research. Thought it was good to default to a mailbag since that would also allow us to tackle some of the most recent news items. Before we get started, though, a please, please, pretty please with sugar on top reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Hardwood Knox wherever you get your podcast. Whether you use iTunes or not, we ask that you head over there, search Hardwood Knox, throw us that five-star rating and review. Those also help us out a ton in the charts. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. Uh, whether you've come here randomly or by suggestion or just saw this tweet or or whatever, we hope that you stick around. Consider throwing us that permanent subscription. I promise it is not just me going solo all the time. Predominantly, it's not that. Again, this was a, a special circumstance. We are, in totality, myself and my co-host Adam Promo, only modestly insufferable when it comes to podcasts that cover the entire NBA at large, in my totally unbiased, uninvested opinion. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. You can follow us on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. Follow our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube.com. Search Hardwood Knox. We will come up. Subscribe there. And yeah, that's about it. You can follow me on Twitter too if you really want to at Damp Valley, F-A-V-A-L-E. But we do have a mailbag to get to. We had a a ton of really good questions and some really shitty questions that I I did not answer because they were in, in mocking of certain things. I appreciate jokes, but... I'm getting a little bit, I don't, I don't want to use the word annoyed, let's say yeah, a tired, fatigued, disgusted by the Zion Williamson weight jokes. I've only filtered in the, the great questions. There were some that I was unable to get to just yet because we, we had so many and I want to keep this podcast to under you know two hours and 50 minutes or, or what have you. I think we should begin with Kemba Walker. John. Let's begin with John Wall because we had a couple questions on John Wall. Actually, no one asked us about Kemba Walker, the Knicks announcing that he was going to be displaced from the rotation. So let's actually begin there. I'll just provide my two cents, maybe even three cents on this entire situation. Tibbs basically came out, told, didn't basically come out, he did come out, told reporters that Kemba Walker is no longer in the rotation. The Knicks are going to be starting Alec Burks. It's a decision that is in stark contrast to how the Knicks acted last year with Alfred Payton who they kept in the rotation to their detriment, both during the regular season and the playoffs. I think you can probably applaud Tibbs finally making this decision. I'm tend to be indifferent to it. It doesn't prove to me that he's necessarily learned anything. I think this more so speaks to how low risk the Kemba Walker addition was when you're looking at the money he's making. Um, you didn't have a ton of equity in, invested in him. So it's easier for you to say, Hey, we're going to bench Kemba rather than bench Evan Fournier, who we gave three guaranteed years in free agency at essentially double the price point of what Kemba Walker is making per year. This is not to say that I think Evan Fournier should have been the one that's benched. I'm probably more intrigued by what the Knicks would look like if you bench Evan Fournier instead of Kemba Walker. Uh, But I'm also intrigued to see a more extensive sample from this starting unit with Alec Burks in there. They have only played Burks, Fournier, Barrett, Randall, and Mitchell Robinson 25 possessions together this season. 
They have outscored opponents by 12.6 points per 100 possessions over that small size, a 128 offensive rating against a 115.4 defensive rating. One's an elite mark, the former, and the latter is absolute dog shit. Again, such a small sample size, you don't know. What I do think this infers is there, there are a few things. One, they clearly, the Knicks clearly don't want to separate Emmanuel Quickly and Derek Rose too much if they were going to eat into the second unit that's been just straight up annihilating fools this year. And I totally get that. You can give Alec Burks the the quick hook and and put in Derek Rose if you're looking for more stable point guard presence there. Maybe even if you want Emmanuel quickly to be the first sub off the bench in this situation. So th- there are ways around that. And I, I like that thinking there. I also think that while Derek Rose is long, while we've seen Emmanuel quickly step up defensively, you might get a little bit more wing type resistance from Alec Burks just because Evan Fournier is going to need to be you know hidden. He's just not going to to help you there. What is interesting about this, though, is I'm assuming, look, and when you look at Kemba Walker's been hitting threes this season, people are pointing at the season stats. He's at a higher clip from three than Evan Fournier on the year. But Evan Fournier has also been a lot better recently than, than Kemba Walker has. When you look at, you know, since November 1st, which is really when this whole Knicks malaise started, they're six and eight in the month of, of November. Evan Fournier is shooting 35.9% from three, which is, you know, not great. He's been, he's really upped it over the past few games. Kemba Walker's at 29.6%. The concern about Kemba Walker is he's getting the rim even less than in previous years. 21% of his shots are coming at the rim. It's only a 1% increase over last season. And then that number has been on sort of the downtick over the past few years. Tibbs also mentioned he didn't want to put three undersized guards in the rotation. There, there's some definite merit to that. The Knicks defense has picked up in, in November owed only in small part to just more lucky. I wouldn't even call it lucky opponent three-point shooting. Um, Opponents are shooting sub 36% against them from three in the month of November. It's their rim protection has been astounding. Uh, Opponents are shooting 56% at the rim against the Knicks in the month of November, which is just, that's by far and away the, the league's best mark. And they're actually taking a bunch of their shots within four feet, just given how the Knicks are defending right now. So they're 12th in points allowed per possession for the month of November, but their offense that's coincided with a 24th place ranking and points scored per possession. Kemba Walker has not really helped you there when he's not making shots. What I think this decision says, other than the size of Kemba Walker, if he's three inches taller, if he's Alfred Payton size, is Evan Fournier they make this decision for? I still don't know because there is the, it becomes politics. You paid Evan Fournier more. Are you going to rip him out of the, the rotation, let alone the, the starting unit? What I also think this says by moving Alec Burks into the starting lineup, the Knicks really want Julius Randle to just have carte blanche influence over the offense. And I thought that Kemba Walker did a fairly good job of trying to exist within the the larger dynamic of, of Nick games to where he wasn't the reason that we saw Julius Randle struggle with his efficiency as, as much as we have. I think the, the tougher thing for Randle has just been when he's off the ball more, it doesn't really feel like his, he knows what to do and his offense isn't coming in these vastly different forms overall. This is still someone who wants to operate with the ball in his hands and attack. And there's real credence to saying, Hey, he is our best player. We, we paid him. We moved Burks into the starting unit. He's called the point guard, but it's really, it's Julie. It's really Julius Randall who is running your offense. That is an interesting decision to make. I do not yet know if it's the right one. If you tell me it's going to result in more touches for RJ Barrett, I'm all here for it. Maybe this is even a situation where you insert Derek Rose, pull RJ Barrett and give him time to get more offensive reps with the second unit where he can have more of an influence over the offense. And if, if that is a trickle down effect of moving Kemba Walker 
out of the rotation, I think it's worth it because me personally, I'm more concerned with New York's long, long-term trajectory, no matter how much they went all in over the offseason. It wasn't really all in. I don't think they chained themselves to anything that they they can't reverse, but this is a team that's not built to be great. It was never built to be great. It was built to be good, and I think they've underachieved relative to those expectations. They have the league's hardest remaining schedule, and so there is some urgency to kind of figure this out. That being said, Julius Randle's shooting splits have been a lot worse with Kemba Walker off the court, and so removing the threat of Kemba Walker's creation I am wondering what that could do to Randall. The idea of Kemba Walker is worth something, even when Kemba Walker is is actually struggling. And you're replacing him with Alec Burks, who, yeah, he's, he's a shot generator himself, so Julius Randall might be fine there. Randall has played better, more efficiently, with Evan Fournay off the court. That is something to monitor, and this is including during the month of November. How much of that is just skewed by the fact that the Knicks starting lineup to this point has been a, a bottom feeder, just the the worst high volume unit in the NBA by, by far, for the most part. There's definitely noise in there. This is still something to monitor, though, because I think it says a lot about how the Knicks want to use Julius Randle and maybe how they feel about, yes, he needs more spacing and shot creation around him, but is his offense really going to change? Is his feel for playing within that? Is that going to improve? And Tibbs had kind of mentioned that they're going in, they were going in too many different directions. And that could speak to the offseason of maybe going one too far, where they leaned so far into offensive creation that they got away from specialists or just maximizing the fit around Julius Randle, at least during the regular season. That's not necessarily on the Kemba Walker edition. That could have fallen into their lap. It does seem like they had advanced notice on it, just given how much cap space they they left themselves to, to operate with. I just don't, overall, is what I'm getting at. I don't view this necessarily as a solution to anything, at least not guaranteed. It is an answer. It's a response. It's a change. And I think you need to give the Knicks credit for making such a a stark change this early in this, well, not this early, but just making a stark change at all when they were more stubborn last year. I don't know if that implies growth from Tibbs. I'm, I'm not going to say yes there. Let's see if he's willing to adjust from here. I also don't think this is the last we've heard from Kemba Walker in New York. Injuries, for one, happen. I think you can talk yourself into certain instances that he can still be valuable off the bench. If this doesn't work and New York seasons go off the rails, um, even more so, what do they look at? Do they try and get him back in the starting unit? Do they shake things up even further? Maybe we get to a point, I would probably wait a couple weeks if, if he wants a trade. There are teams that I think could certainly use him, and he's so cheap. I don't know what his value would be, but if you don't have to take on any long-term salary and you do him a solid um, maybe send him to you know a team like the Clippers could could really need him. Their offense is hovering around the bottom five in points per possession, but they probably need someone who puts more more rim pressure on their basket. Maybe a team just like New Orleans that is not winning games is not going to win games either, but is clearly trying to win games just to provide some you know outside shooting stability at point guard there for for them. Uh, you know, in addition to Devonte Graham, obviously when you haven't gotten a leap from Nikhil Alexander Walker or a or a Kyra Lewis Jr. They're not really playing Thomas Sadaransky. There are teams that would want Kim Walker, and I think there are teams that could absolutely where he could absolutely help them. I just don't think we're going to get that point to the Knicks. There's a wait and see mode here, obviously, and I, I just I don't know if this is going to work. Is what I'm getting at. We need to see how it plays out. I think the player that this actually aside from what this says about Kemba Walker and how ineffective he's been, and there have been nights where he just looks absolutely washed but they've never needed him to be the takeover guy. And I think he prioritized trying to not be that at certain points, even though he just probably can't. So this is first and foremost, one, a referendum on 
on Kemba Walker, how he's played specifically since, uh, you know, for the, for the past month or so, I think what it says more or equally, excuse me, it, it says a lot about how the Knicks want to use Julius Randle and how they think that needs to be set up. And so Alec Burks has had some really good moments this year. Uh, he is shooting 45.1% from three. This is someone who can also get you a bucket. And that might be with the ball in his hands. That might be why this could work out is you're losing Kemba Walker's shot creation in theory, and he's still a better passer than Alec Burks. But Burks is not someone who is far into working with, with the ball in his hands. And so you still have that element of, oh, can someone go out and just create their own jumper because Kemba Walker wasn't getting to the rim anyway. And at this point, you're going to get more, you know, I shouldn't even say that you're probably going to get just as much, if not, you know, a tad more rim pressure from Alec Burks. Uh, his 21% of his shots are coming at the rim this season. That's identical to Kemba Walker's share. So these are the Knicks just don't have those, a ton of those guards that are going to get to the basket at will. I'm, I, I think Alec Burks was one of the potential right answers though. And it was less about who were you putting in the starting unit? If it was Emmanuel quickly, I would get it. If it was Derek Rose, I would get it. And I get Alec Burks. I'm just wondering, I do think people were quick to say that, that you haven't watched the Knicks if you said this. And maybe that says something about how much people have watched the Knicks for the month of November or the, the past couple of weeks, seven, four days look better on offense. I don't think that this is a no brainer call when it's between Evan Fournier and Kemba Walker to see who's more, not more damning, but who, where, where's the greater opportunity for addition by subtraction, I guess is what the question comes down to. And the Knicks have decided it was Kemba Walker. I don't think that's the wrong answer. I'm just not positive. That's the absolute right answer. And they might just value Evan Fournier's size point blank. He's six, seven, not a good defender, but that's versus Kemba Walker. Who's, you know, six foot in, in probably high tops. So that's the decision tips made. We need to see how it works out. The Knicks are playing the Nets on Tuesday night, who just lost, by the way, quick note on the Nets. They lost Joe Harris is going to have ankle surgery. That's a big blow for them. He is to me, Penny Mills has been great. Uh, so is LaMarcus Aldridge for them. I would still view Harris as their third best and, and most important player. You're already now without Kyrie. You're down two of your four most important players now. Patty Mills is going to replace some of that shooting. When you look at just the wing minutes, that's going to put a lot on Bruce Brown or DeAndre Bembry. I wonder, depending on how much time Harris misses, since there's no timetable, but it seems like the there's no concrete timetable, but the Nets are hoping he'll be back in like eight to 12 weeks, I think it was, and maybe on the earlier end of that timetable, if I'm not misremembering. Do they go out and try and find a wing? Can they get a Daniel House from Houston? Maybe just as someone to replace like the body on the wing. You're not going to get Joe Harris's functional shooting back, but just as another body because Harris covered some pretty important defensive assignments at, at points. And so if you believe in DeAndre Bembry, if you believe in Bruce Brown, that's that's fine. But uh, the Joe Harris stuff is going to be be something to watch from from here on from Brooklyn. Let's move on to the John Wall stuff. We had various inquiries about him, given the latest update. According to Woj, Wall recently met with Rockets general manager Raphael Stone about rejoining Houston's rotation, which he has yet to set foot in this season. That dialogue did absolutely nothing. Wall apparently wants to start. The Rockets only want him to come off the bench. That was apparently the status quo over the offseason as well, which speaks to why he ended up not playing at all. Trading Wall is... Easier said than done, to put it lightly. He's owed $44.3 million this season and $47.3 million next year on a player option. Per Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix, suitors are only interested in dealing from all if he declines that player option, which he has no reason to do because he's not even going to recoup $47.3 million over the course of a three-year deal if he were to reject it. 
equally implausible. The, the the Rockets are not attaching sweeteners to, to get rid of Wall. I guess, could you talk yourself into giving up Milwaukee's 2023 first or just some seconds to do it? Perhaps, but rebuilding squads have little incentive to unload picks or prospects just for the sake of cutting salary. That's not something they're, they're going to do. And, and just moving him is so difficult. There are teams that could arguably use him, but they're going to be interested if he gets bought out. That's basically what it is. Or I guess apparently Permatics, if he declines his, his player option. When you're dealing with a number this huge, even looking at the, the short term becomes difficult. He's not all of a sudden a trade asset over the summer because he's making $47.3 million. You're, how, how often do you see trades where you're just sending out that one monstrous salary attached to whatever, picks and prospects to get a star? And that's the really the only situation in which it would be valuable. Otherwise, you're looking at probably minimum a three-for-one deal is what you have to do when you're trading John Wall because that salary is is so huge. And then there, whatever teams are going to trade for him, you're not going to view um, Wall in the terms of, well, we can waive him or broker a buyout with him next season. Because it, waving and stretching his salary over three years is just like, what does it do? It's 15 plus million dollars basically in dead money for, for three years there. That's, that's not great. And then you can't just have that much dead money on the books if you're trying to win, which if you're trading for wall, I assume you're probably trying to do, I don't, there, there just aren't worse contracts out there for bad teams to talk themselves into uh, acquiring wall. I mean, even trying to find like longer term deals, there's no truly bad long-term deal on the books that makes sense to take on this season of wall and next season. If that is, that's how you're viewing it. If you really want John wall, whatever, think he's still good. That's fine too. I just don't, I don't know what that team is. It's almost un, it's, it's almost impossible to just come up with a team where it makes sense to, they should actually trade for John wall. Um, you could look at, you know, Cleveland having lost Colin Sexton for a year. That would be fairly interesting. And you do have Kevin Love's salary. Love has played like fairly well for Cleveland through a nice touchdown pass on, on Monday night, by the way, I think to Darius Garland, that, that was a fun watch. And also just beyond his salary, you have to come up with more money and you're just not chock full of these expendable players. You're still getting into that issue of three for ones and, and four for ones. And are you willing to give up Jetty Osmond, who's been shooting really well for you this year? So that's just a team where it doesn't make sense. I think the one that I've landed on uh, and look, if Houston was willing to include assets, then yeah, could Detroit, could Oklahoma City, teams like that, maybe even Sacramento, if, if they finally blow it up like they absolutely should. Can they talk themselves into taking wall? Yeah, there are teams that I think can convince themselves to take on wall if they're getting compensated and maybe not even heavy compensation. That being said, the Houston Rockets have no reason to, to offer that. The Galaxy brand trade is just swapping Russell Westbrook for John Wall, throw Russ back to Houston and Lakers pivot. But aside from me trolling, Russ has not been the primary issue of late for Los Angeles. I do think his fit is still a long-term dilemma for them, but he's not, I don't, adding wall just doesn't help you unless you think he's going to be this monstrous defensive upgrade and, and provide you with a ton more floor spacing possible, but unlikely I've settled on the Clippers and they have the ready-made framework of, okay, Eric Bledsoe, He's making 18 plus million this year, 3.9 million partial guarantee next year. He can be an offensive zero without being great on defense. You have Serge Ibaka's expiring salary. He's just not looked great after returning from his back injury. The only other way to recoup it, the re or not to recoup, to build on top of that though, you still need another player, if not two players, if not three players, because it's either Marcus Moore Sr. or Luke Kennard that you would have to include as that third player. I still think it's Kennard. Uh, he 
he opened the season on relative fire, but he's dipped below 34% shooting from deep over the past 12 games, and he's barely hitting 40% of his twos for the season. His defensive energy has been pretty admirable at times, but he's owed $43.2 million this season through 2023-2024 with a team option for 2024-2025. So when you hear people say that he's on a four-year, 60-ish million-dollar contract, it's really he's guaranteed three years, including this one, and $43.2 million. That is still less than John Wall's making this season, not never mind what's happening next season for the Clippers. Still, I think you can say that Wall's going to give you more as a passer. He's going to give you more as someone who can put pressure at the rim. And right now, LA is 25th in points scored per possession, 20th in the share of their shots that come at the rim, and 29th in transition efficiency. Wall can, even with you know his downgraded level of explosion from his heyday, he's still going to give you some extra pressure on set defenses. And he's definitely an outside shooting and playmaking upgrade over Eric Bledsoe. If you're willing to move Kennard, which if I'm the Clippers, I'm probably not doing it just because of the number for Wall next year. And that's where you get into the problems of you're raising your tax bill this season, albeit not by much because this three-for-one package is only adding in raw salary under $4 million to your payroll. But next season, that's going to limit what you can do. You probably need to view Wall as a trade asset because you're not this would be a classic team that's not going to buy him out or just take that lesser cap hit. They need that money to go to someone. Maybe they view it that way. I I honestly don't know. Or maybe they like his fit with Kawhi and PG, where he's all of a sudden the third option instead of even the, the number two. This season, there's probably a path to justifying it just because you don't have Kawhi. You don't know if he's going to come back from that partially torn ACL. And your defense has been so good at points that if you can just get a nudge in the right direction offensively, Maybe you really have something here. And the West is, you know, beyond Phoenix and Golden State and Utah, the West is wide open. We know that the Nuggets are not going to have Michael Porter Jr. for probably the rest of this season. We don't know when Jamal Murray's coming back. Um, that was the other sort of bit of breaking news was is that Denver is now without, you know, its two best players in addition to PJ Dozier. He's also out for the season. Uh, the impact on the Nuggets, by the way, if they had one of Murray or Michael Porter Jr., I think that they would be a viable title contender. And it could be Michael Porter Jr. as that one. He wasn't playing well when he went down. That was due to injury, I think we clearly know at this point. But I'll touch on the Nuggets actually in a a second for a little bit. So if the West is wide open enough, maybe the Clippers can talk them into this. Maybe this is a situation where, what if they're getting Milwaukee's 2023 first back? And that's just an asset they can include in a deal and Houston views it as a throwaway asset. You know, let's break Wall up into some digestible contracts. Um, two of them come off the books after the season since you pay Eric Bledsoe to go away. You can also, Luke Kennard's only 25. He's also eminently tradable. That's something you could look at, or just a couple seconds. That's something that they could throw in there. Just the cost of, hey, we're, you know, getting rid of a, what's become a distraction for us. I think you could also argue that Wall can help the Rockets and not in a bad way. I know you want to develop Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green, but there there needs to be a safety net beyond them, which is why it's so puzzling that they couldn't even guarantee Wall like a an actual role. Uh, I mean, aside from just taking up DJ Augustine's minutes, I think that he can really help out Jalen Green specifically, but it, but even Kevin Porter Jr. is I don't think either of those guys should have the full brunt of Houston's offensive burdens foisted on to them. And that's what makes this decision so absolutely puzzling from the Rockets standpoint. Just to draw that line seems I get it. And you appreciate the investment in the youth, but you can't, there's something to not leaving kids all alone and wall. If he's willing to play for you. And even if you needed to start him and just give him the quick hook, if, if he's willing to play like a 20 to 25 minutes per game role, that's fine. I think that that can actually help you. 
However, just beyond the Clippers, though, looking at outside teams that would trade for Wall, I'm not talking about a buyout. I don't, I honestly don't have anyone. I thought about Memphis when John Morant first went down, but luckily he's going to be back in a few weeks. And even then, it's like, I don't know why you would want to trade Steven Adams and, and Filler just to get Wall and then still have him on your books when Morant is going to be there. Uh, Orlando could really use the the offensive jolt and has some just throwaway, like if you Terrence Ross and Gary Harris, like those are guys who are expendable. They're, they're not trying to win games either. I know people have mentioned sort of uh, Philly. It's just, it's not happening as part of a Benson. Even if they leaned, I guess if they leaned all the way into a future return and they really like Tyrese Maxey, I just don't even know why you'd want Wall's money on the books. That's just going to bring you closer to, you know, it's not going to, it will increase your tax bill depending on the money that's there, but just to have that much, that dollar amount tied up in one player, it, it limits your, your flexibility of what you're going to spend, even though I guess you could argue that it does so without um, hamstringing roster spots. It's not like you, it's not, John Wall's not costing you two roster spots. It's still one roster spot. I just, I don't see a fit anywhere else. If you have one, feel free to get at me. I'm talking about a team that would actually trade for John Wall. If you have one, get at me at Damp Valley, F-A-V-A-L-E. Let's talk about this Michael Porter Jr. stuff very quickly. Uh, he's going to have back surgery, might be out for the rest of the season. The Rockets aren't quite sure. They made the decision early enough where I think it's open-ended. This is really a gut punch, another gut punch for a, a Nuggets team that already missing Jamal Murray, now missing P.J. Dozier, has had their fair share of offensive struggles this year. Jokic was out with a wrist injury for a while. He did return on Monday night, though, so that's also um, that's also good news for them. It's just, what do they do? And I think there are a bunch of different ways to, to look at it. They're a team that's 500. They're 16th in offensive efficiency, 19th in defensive efficiency. Ironically, I destroyed my co-host, Adam, for saying that Jokic belonged in the early season defensive player of the year discussion. I still kind of believe he needed to be shamed for that, but not having Jokic really seemed to fuck with Denver's defense. Uh, just he plays such a he plays well in their hyper aggressive style, has good hands, and can really get up onto the ball and is at least in the in the right spots. And so going from him to either a smaller front court or having to rely on just guys who don't have as much reps or aren't as good defensively in that scheme really hurt them. And then also uh, you can't just expect Aaron Gordon to anchor that all on his own. So the defense might pick up for Denver. The offense is going to be fine with Jokic on the floor. I think you would preferably, you need a, you know, help replace Dozier, what he brought to you defensively, or just looking at Porter Jr. and Dozier collectively, you need another wing who can hoist threes. I don't really know what trades out there they're going to be willing to make. Uh, I like Eric Gordon for this team, but then you get into scenarios where you're trading two of Jamichael Green, Jeff Green, and Monte Morris, plus something else is he's too small for you as well. He's going to give you some offensive creativity, hit deep threes, get at the rim. That's great. But you probably want someone who can more consistently defend wings. And if you're going to funnel so much of your resources into an 18 plus million dollar per year player, Eric Gordon's just not properly sized for it. I also don't know that you make that type of a big time move when you're dealing with so many injuries. I don't know who's going to make me feel a lot better about the Nuggets' immediate title chances should you tell me they're not going to have Michael Porter Jr. or Jamal Murray to close this year. And there's a very real chance that they won't, and you don't want to funnel your assets into just a, a wasted season. Maybe there's more of a stopgap here. Uh, can you look at getting a... Yuta Wantanabe from Toronto, would they even be willing to move him? 
Daniel House again in Houston is someone who, in theory, can hit threes, even though he's not right now. He's going to give you some just defensive positional malleability. I, I mean, like those are probably the, the scale of moves that Denver would be better off focusing on because I don't, I also, one, I don't know what the all in proposition really looks like for them, but two, it is fairly hard for them to match salary um, because you're not trading Gordon, sign him to an extension, but you're not trading Gordon, you're not trading Jokic, you're not trading Murray, you're not trading Michael Porter Jr. at this point. And so the salary matching gets tough after that. And if you're going to give up a Bowens Highland or even a Zeke Nashi, you need to be getting back someone you view as probably a longer, not probably definitely a longer term part of your core. And, and, and even if you, even if it's a Reggie Bullock and you're just betting on, let's say the Mavericks want to move him to a conference rival and that you can bank on him playing better with you. You're not giving up bones Highland for that type of equity. Uh, Josh Hart in new Orleans would be interesting. He's having a hell of a year. I'd be curious what the asking rate is for that. I don't think they're going to want the first, first round pick that Denver can trade, which I believe is in 2027. Do you give up Bones Highland for a Josh Hart when Hart is not really a shot creator? You do have him under team control beyond this season if you want. That is Josh Hart. But Highland, there's a swing there. Like He has a high ceiling as someone who can generate his own offense, but is also just right now, we saw it on Monday night, his return to the lineup, just did a bunch of super deep threes and really opens up the floor for you and can have these big nights. If you can figure out a way to get Josh Hart without Giving up Bones Highland, if it's costing you Zeke, if it's costing you one of the greens, if it's costing you Monte Morris, would you Zeke Najee, Monte Morris for Josh Hart? Do the Pelicans even want to do that? I think Monte Morris could actually probably help their offense and Zeke Najee deepens their center rotation, but you have minutes, good minutes from Willie Hernan Gomez right now, plus Jonas Valanciunas, Jackson Hayes been bounced from the rotation. Um, so yeah, even, even that becomes an issue. Can you send Zeke Najee somewhere else that might send uh, New Orleans something that they want? Josh Hart might be like the biggest name that I could envision the the Nuggets targeting insofar as we've been willing to go that far. And I don't know that I'd endorse them. I'm always for teams going after it, but just the sheer breadth of the injuries, uh, the, the, the players that they're missing, I just can't bring myself unless they're going to stumble into someone that we can't even think about right now. I, I don't know why you would be ultra aggressive on the trade market here. You should probably just be monitoring more so for, cheaper flyers or a middle end option. Again, Josh Hart might be, might be the limit for me. And that's even being generous to someone who you want to, to shoot threes. Um, never just been this super efficient, high volume guy from deep for his career. And so that would be something else to consider. Let's dive headfirst into this actual mailbag though. We will begin with the NBA chicken who asks, what trends are you buying roughly 20 games into the season? Rather than focus on, this player is better. This team is better. I'm buying this team for real. I mean, if you want to ask, I'm definitely buying Golden State for real, if anyone cares. Uh, tongue in cheek there. I, I'm buying into the offense being down and really dropping as a result of not just the new officiating rules, but also the past you know, two seasons really were butchered by the coronavirus pandemic. And you got into a situation where players went into the bubble that, you know, for the eight games plus the playoffs where they were shooting the lights out. And then just last year when you didn't have fans and stands in a lot of places for much of the season. And so you look at this year, the average offensive rating so far is 108.6. That is down from last year where it was 112.9. And, and that, and also you go back to 2019, 2020, the average offensive rating then was 110.9. And so there's even, there's definitely some correction there. Like, 
you went from that full season with empty arenas. But so even going back to 2019, 2020, where you only really have those bubble games slightly inflating those offensive ratings, you're, you're still looking at a demonstrative drop-off there. The foul rate, average foul rate that year, 20.2 in 2019, 2020. In 2020, 2021, the average foul rate, free throw attempt rate, excuse me, was 19.2. You know, this season has dropped to 17.5. I think that might go up a little bit as time goes on, as refs, you know, are, aren't as loose with the with the whistle. Uh, it does feel like there were maulings at the rim that really should have been called, and everyone's still adjusting to adjust adjusting whew, uh, to this new world order. So that will go up a little bit, but those sort of effects feel like they're here to stay. And the other thing would be, are we going to see this difference in shot distribution? Um, 32.1% of the average shots for teams are coming at the rim this year. That's down from last year at 33.3%. And that to me would be more to do with the the new foul rules. And going to 2019, 2020, it was even higher 35.2%. That's um, the average share of shots that came out at, at the rim per team. And so that's just what I'm buying is that offense is going to hover more so around here. I don't think that this is just a one-year anomaly or a quarter season anomaly from last year. I really do think the the foul rules combined with how um, teams played last year where it wasn't as hostile on road environments since there weren't fans. And I just think in general, empty arenas might be more conducive to to players line of sight being more accurate, maybe even especially for, for role players. That's just something I think we need to really buy into at, at this point. Next question comes from Hermie is Draymond back. And the answer here is yes. I think we've seen Draymond turn on the defensive jets before um, in previous seasons over the last two specifically though, it was definitely more selective last year was close to full bore. He made all NBA first defense and all defense first team, excuse me. And he definitely deserved it. This year is like a completely different being. We're talking about a Draymond green. Who's at peak dynasty level. Uh, He came out and said that he's not appreciated enough basically. And it wasn't unprompted, but he did say that defense doesn't go viral. and, And a lot of the people don't know what they're, they're talking about. He's right. I mean, I cover this league for a living full time and there's, I'm not going to know what I'm talking about on defense. And I wouldn't use myself as the standard because I'm a fucking idiot, but you watch Draymond Green on defense though. If you do actually watch him, I I think it's easy to appreciate what he does, um, how much he's going to communicate on the defensive end and really just the, the ground he covers and the smarts and the explosive control with which he, he plays with where he's someone who could really, he will hard close out on somebody, but is not going to foul them and will pull back enough if they're going to attack off the dribble and, and try and capitalize on his closeout where it doesn't even feel like they have the advantage there. I think he's probably one of the best in the league at contesting shots while he's really backtracking and, and off balance. His, his rotations around the rim are just absolutely on point. And his activity level is such that I was watching the Warriors-Cavs game. Was that Sunday or Saturday? I don't even, I don't even know at this point. But there was a play where he's in the middle of the floor, like he's going to be in the half court a ton. And he shifts over to um, his strong side, but the Cavs weak side for a pick and roll that's being run between Kevin Love and and Darius Garland. Um, He immediately shifts over to cut off a a cut that's coming from Isaac Okoro at the opposite end, uh, on the other end of that court. And then once that part of it's been neutered, he goes 
to cover Dean Wade in the corner. Um, and then also breaks up the play from Ricky Rubio there, though. I'm, st- I'm stammering through this to try to remember the play. I should have had the highlight right in front of me. But he's, he's in the middle of the floor. He rotates over just to have his eyes on the Darius Garland, Kevin Love side pick and roll. Then he's moving over to cut off the Isaac Okoro cut. When that's not an imminent threat for him, he's going to the corner where Dean Wade is sort of camped out, but then comes back quickly enough just to break off the the play where Ricky Rubio has the ball at this point to create a turnover there. He literally impacted all five guys in the Cavs lineup on that one half court possession. And that was, I don't know if that's the microcosm of Draymond Green's defensive impact, that play specifically, but that's just something that sprang to mind immediately uh, for me is that type of activity, even whether you don't know if that's what he's doing, supposed to be the, the right rotation or if the timing was there, or if he got lucky because Ricky Rubio took like a weird, weird path or didn't read um, that Draymond green wasn't further enough in the corner for him to try and go attack down the middle there. Maybe R- Ricky Rubio's handle was loosey goosey in the moment. There, there are types of things that I just won't account. F- I can't account for. Wouldn't be able to tell you, but that type of activity, and he just does it without fouling a ton. He is averaging 3.2 fouls per 36 minutes. This is right in line with 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, Draymond Green, um, where it's the third lowest foul rate of his career as of right now. It's tied with others, but it's the when you're going like the, you know, like move the numbers more decimal places. It's the third lowest foul rate in his career, I believe. And that for the type of activity that he's shouldering, any someone, it's not just we could we could boil it down to he's the best defensive player on the league's best defensive team. That, that is absolutely a fair argument. It's also just his interchangeability, not his capacity to guard all these different positions, but where people looked at Robert Covington as a solution for Portland. And I, I loved that trade for the Blazers at the time, and I still don't necessarily despise it. I even like the Larry Nance Jr. edition. You get a bunch of good team defenders, your defense should be better. But Robert Covington is not going to be this just lockdown, one-on-one guy. He doesn't necessarily have the girth to do that, to couple that with his his quickness and um, ability to use hands. And I think he's been last year. He's probably a little bit better in one-on-one situations than people credit him this year. I think he's just been exploited more. Draymond green can be that guy where it's, I'm not necessarily going to be the, the back line or the free safety of this defense. You want to put me on Kevin Durant, go ahead and just put me on Kevin Durant and he'll still do other stuff while he's defending Kevin Durant, but he will give opponents hell one-on-one. And there, look, there is something to, I don't want to throw out the window, just his positional malleability, but Warriors are playing the Blazers and he's just so disruptive to Damian Lillard. It's not even a matter of getting Damian Lillard to, to miss shots. It's the ball denial. It's how he changes Lillard's course by the way that he is able to avoid screens and it forces Damian Lillard to get, to get rid of the ball, which is, you know, that is given Damian Lillard's had struggles at points this season. That's a net negative proposition for the Blazers is to not have the ball in Damian Lillard's hand. So Draymond Green is back. I think he's defending at the best level I can remember since like peak dynasty warriors. And he would be my pick for defensive player of the year right now. My long winded answer way of saying, I don't know that Draymond Green ever actually left us, but peak Draymond Green on defense appears to be back. Funny that I mentioned the Blazers because Dr. Funkenstein asked, what are the best lineups for the Blazers on offense and defense? We probably need to come up with some arbitrary cutoff here. If you want to use like 25 possessions, you can get into some real like, you know, odd results. If we use it with a minimum of 25 possessions logged, um, their best offensive unit is going to grade out as 
the oh it's still going to be a 55 possession unit of Damian Lillard, Anthony Simons, Norman Powell, Robert Covington, Yusuf Nurkic. They have a 132.7 offensive rating. They also have a really good defensive rating. This comes on the back of them shooting 85 plus percent from mid-range and getting to the rim just a bonkers amount. That group has a 90.7 offense uh defensive rating, by the way. So in terms of pure offensive results, minimum 25 possessions, whether it's a minimum of 50 possessions, doesn't matter. That unit and their 132.7 offensive rating has has been Portland's best this season. Moving on to the defensive side of the floor, just looking at the numbers, minimum of 25 possessions, the, the best defensive unit has probably been the Lillard, McCollum, Powell, Larry Nance, Yusuf Nurkic unit. They've only played 28 possessions together. They have an 83.8 defensive rating, uh, which they have gotten on the back of. They've allowed a, a ton of shots at, at the rim, but they've they have opponents shooting zero percent from three-point range in that time and 37.5 percent from uh mid-range overall and 60 percent at the rim which is just it's, it's a fine march like not super elite but it but it's okay so there's probably just some luck caked into there um, of their higher volume units just if you want to look at just their their top 10 ones that are played they've gotten some really good defensive run out of zeller nance little simons and lillard um that group has a 104.3 defensive rating which is totally rock solid and is paired with a um, a 126.3 offensive rating. They've played 95 possessions together this season. They're the fourth most used um, Blazers lineup to boot. Is there some luck there? I don't know if that's a unit you look at and say, okay, opponents are, there's a reason they're shooting 34.3% from three, 38.1% from mid range. They're at 61.3% at the rim. None of those numbers are so low that it really makes you think there's like a, too much noise there they're probably allowing a few too many attempts at the rim uh, and maybe they're getting a little bit lucky when it comes to opponent three-point shooting uh, they have done a, a great job sort of limiting transition frequency so that's a big part of it too and i think if you look at them and say okay well this is a team where you have the weak links sort of on the perimeter but you have three guys who hold up and in the team scheme specifically and, and little's been playing lights out um but lights up and playing really well this year and you're grabbing your defensive rebounds. There's some low hanging fruit there that could help them. So that would be my actual pick just because they've played so uh, they've played so much this season, just relative to the rest of the Blazers units. And they would probably be, if you're trying to grade the most effective Blazers unit on the year, I, I think the Lillard Simons Powell coming to Nurk one is going to sneak in there because of its offensive rating, but, and it's fair weather sample size, 55 possessions ranks, eighth on the Blazers most used lineups, but this one, um, then Lillard Simons, little Nance and, and Zeller, like that has to be like probably the, but just by the data and relative to how much they've played it, at least the second, maybe third best lineup that they fielded this season. Next question comes from Vince D. He asks, how often do teams win the back end of a back-to-back when the other team is coming off two plus days rest? So I filtered this out at cleaning the glass did it's the second night of a back-to-back. Um, so you're coming off zero days rest and your opponent has at least two days of rest. There weren't enough situations where the opponents had two plus days of rest. Looking at three, there was only a handful of games. The average net rating for teams, and this is reason, is a minus 5.5. And I'm not a fan of measuring stuff like this. So this is not telltale of necessarily anything, but a minus 5.5 net rating would be the equivalent of roughly the Memphis Grizzlies this year. And that, that ranks 25th in your point differential per 100 possessions, just to give you an idea. And teams 
are a combined five and nine in these instances. And so rests, you know, I don't, you can't say this um, with, with an absolute fact, because we're dealing with such a tiny sample size. It's not only 14 games in general, but Chicago and Charlotte are the only teams that have played uh, more than one game under this circumstance. And Chicago is one and one in these situations. Charlotte is zero and two. And then you're dealing with a bunch of one game samples, but the average net rating just across teams that have played this is, is minus 5.5, which is not good with an offensive rating of 102.8. Also not good, even relative to uh, the, the, you know, declining offensive standards of this season. Alan Sindal asks, is Al Peren Shangun good? And my answer is yes. I don't know what he's going to end up being long-term, but this is someone who has been probably one of the, the five best rookies this season could be a dark horse to win rookie of the year, depending on just what kind of happens with you know, the, the Kate Cunningham stuff is out there, but Evan Mobley and Scotty Barnes, will, will they trail off at all? What about Chris Duarte, Franz Wagner? Those are all, those are four guys I would definitely put in front of him. And then, you know, the Cade situation looms just as the season goes on. Shane Goose has been interesting. He throws some really wily passes off the dribble, some one-handed bangers there. He, he's super crafty with the ball in his hands. Um, can disarm defenders inside the arc has some really artful footwork um, even after picking up his handle knows how to use his his pivot foot um, that that flourish off the dribble is just he's a li- just a little bit quicker than I think uh, you realized and definitely quicker than I expected coming in I mentioned that he's already going to stretch the floor I think his defense overall has been better than expected from what I've seen of him he'll have um, moments where He's turning his hips and moving his feet to perfection against quicker attackers, but he can also be flame broiled in space at certain times. And so I'm not really sure what to expect from him there um, over the big, bigger picture, bigger picture trajectory, but he's good. I think he's going to be really good. He should be playing more for Houston. I get that. It's probably hard to pair him and wood uh, together just because you want bigs with more of a heft. Um, what is your defensive rebounding going to look like in those instances? They've actually been able to, to handle the defensive glass when they play together, but the defense overall is not good because I'd hazard that you don't have guys. You One, when you're dealing with someone who has to guard the four, neither of these two are just going to get you a ton of shot contests on the perimeter. Um, they're also not these rim deterrents. We're going to be able to cut off triple penetration with all this consistency, and they're not super. Neither of them are great rim protectors opponents are shooting 69.2% at the rim and 55.6% from short mid range when Shangun and wood are on the floor. Uh, I just, I don't think Shangun's ever going to be like this net positive defender, but that might say more about right now, the results between him and wood could say more about the makeup of, of Houston's roster. They're playing a lot with Jalen green and Kevin Porter jr. And so if Jay Sean Tate is really your only net positive defender in those lineups, you are bound to, to get cooked. Um, even when you are going with some more defensive oriented units, just looking at the lineup data right now, actually, you want to be hard pressed there. But I think Shangun as a future is a really good to great offensive center in this league. His swing skill is just going to be defense in the sense of how can he hold up? What type of a rim protector he's, is he going to be? And how does he move in space? Can he make consistent plays there to where he's not getting torched? At Beckfist TV asks, what is Monte Morris shooting from mid-range? I'm a Nuggets fan. It seems like he hasn't missed. He has, in fact, missed, but you, I get where you're coming from. He's shooting 48% from mid-range. That's 48 of 99 on the season. He's actually shooting 52% on log mid-range jumpers, which are shots between 14 feet and just inside the three-point line. He is at 32 of 61 from there, and then just from the floater range, 16 of 
uh, 38, which is good for 42%. And so like the long jumpers are really propping him up there. It's nice to have that solid option from him. Wild to me that he is shooting 52% on long mid rangers versus 32% from three. He is shooting, he's shooting pretty good on above the break threes around 30. 6%. He's five of 22 on quarter threes, which really that's 23%. That's going to drag down his total quite an actual bit. Monte Morris, though, a favorite of this podcast of my co-host, Adam Frommel, super efficient player and of late this season, mid range savant. And it's not, look, this is, you know, I don't think he's going to hit 52% of his long mid rangers for the season, but let's look at his career splits for mid range 52% as in um, 2007, um, 2018, 2019. 157 of 302, 41% in, two, in 2019, 2020, 40% last year, 48% this year. Not like this huge outlier. He's always been, I would say, an above average um, uh, mid-range shooter. And he only played two games in 2017, 2018, so that's not caked in to there. But yeah, he shot 52% on all mid-rangers uh, in his second season, and that was on 302 attempts. It wasn't volume that you would necessarily scoff at. So perfectly sustainable? I have no idea. 52% on long mid rangers again that seems a little that seems a little spicy but this is not out of character by by any means for for Monte Morris Scampy asks what's Zach Levine shooting on wide open threes Zach Levine is shooting 38.6% on wide open threes where a defender is 6 or more feet away from him that's 17 to 44 he's also 34 of 85 on open three pointers where a defender is uh, 4 to 6 feet away from him Ironically, these open three-pointers, combining them, they account for about the same share of his shots as they did last season. Um, I think he's really benefited more so in, inside the arc in the past that open up both on the ball and, and off the ball for him by having DeMar DeRozan there and just some other weapons. And the bull spacing has also been pretty funky at different points this year. So uh, that's something to consider. Zach Levine has dropped off with his off-the-dribble three-point shooting. He's still around 35%, though, on off the dribble threes. And, and that's an asset to have someone who can hit those shots, but he's, he's hitting his open three pointers, 39.5% combined on the season when a defender is at least four feet away from him. And knowing that he's not, doesn't need to be the primary ball handler in all these units. That's an absolute weapon for, um, for the bulls to use. And, and they, they have used it. Morgan asks, who is the most underrated player in the NBA currently? This is a loaded question. It's subjective. Um, I'll give shout outs before I give my actual answer here. Royce O'Neal, just the defensive workload that he carries. Juan Toscano Anderson is up there for me. He's not, doesn't even have a consistent place in the Warriors rotation, but he's just, he's a smart player, can fill so many different gaps. Devin Vassell is probably up there at this point for me. Cameron Johnson, I don't think people realize what he can do offensively other than shoot. And he wasn't shooting well to start the season, but also just someone who's not going to, to play to your detriment on the defensive end. I think the Timberwolves have two and Jaden McDaniels and Jared Vanderbilt. Both of those guys are defensive monsters. And I'm not sure the you know national NBA fandom discourse covers either of them enough. And they definitely don't get a ton of national media shine. There, there are there's a subgenre of NBA Twitter that's in love with Jared Vanderbilt this season, but those two. Isaiah Hartenstein, I could not believe that he like came down as a fringe roster guy. For the Clippers this season, excuse me, as I as I lose my voice. This is just someone who can pass, can can make certain um, quick plays on, on offense for you, is not going to be boom roasted every single time around the rim defensively. Just as a second or third big, how he didn't have a guaranteed roster spot for so long will continue to 
blow my mind. Jalen Brunson's up there. He is shooting 57 plus percent on drives this season. Fun fact, there are 10 players averaging 10 drives per game this year. Uh, five players averaging 10 plus drives per game this year and shooting 57% or better on them. Giannis, Luca, Jalen Brunson, Mike Conley, and Malcolm Brogdon. Hysterical that Dallas has two of them, and they're not a team that puts a ton of pressure on the rim, which shows you the type of load that the Doncic and uh, Jalen Brunson have to one carry, and then also what they can do from that in between range. Frank Neal Key is up there for me, by the way. He was the Mavs' best free agent addition this offseason. I think that's become pretty clear. I'm not even being tongue in cheek. Those were all honorable mentions for me, and you can come up with others. I think mine, and it's a higher profile one, mostly. Name, I think people will recognize. This is not a deep cut of some people might consider Isaiah Hartenstein a deep cut or Frank Neal Aquino or Jaden McDaniels, even Jared Vanderbilt. Rashawn Holmes. This dude is so good. He is so, so, so good. 62.5% on his push shots this year. That's just a mind-melting number that's also sustainable given how he plays. I don't think he receives enough credit for being not bad defensively. He's not going to be great. He can't resurrect the Kings defense on his own, but he is a viable rim protector who is not Bambi on ice when he's pulled a little bit further away. This season, opponents are shooting 53.3% against him at the basket. Uh, among everyone who has contested at least 100 shots from point-blank range this year, that is the sixth best mark in the league, right around Evan Mobley, Miles Turner, Daniel Gafford, Giannis, and, and Rudy Gobert, who remains a monster there. This is just someone who's, who's solid, and he's just ahead of Jared Allen, Clint Capella, John Collins, um, Domas Sabonis. You get the picture there. I cannot believe that the Kings got to keep him on that early bird four-year deal where he's basically making the mid-level exception. Oh, that's basically what it is. It's a little bit more, but he's making close to mid-level money over the next four years. Fourth season is a player option, of course. I, I couldn't believe that there wasn't a stronger market for him in free agency. I'm curious to see whether he gets moved this season. I would absolutely trade him if I'm the Kings because his value should be at an all-time high, and you should get a first-round pick, maybe a, an interesting young player or two for him, not super high-end stuff. Something I had sort of proposed, uh, bounced around this idea, anyway, was can you get him to Toronto uh, and Toronto will send Sacramento its pick this year, lotto protected, Precious Achua, Delano Banton, and Goran Dragic. Um, maybe you send a 2023 second round pick as well from Toronto. Uh, that would be for Tristan Thompson and Rashawn Holmes. Just something that I've been um, ruminating about. I think he they need that nice lob threat um, and his skill there. Holmes is a given in the open floor and his lob finisher. Like I said, he's shooting 62.5% on, on fucking floaters. That is that is nuts. That is just absolutely bonkers. I don't know that you get two first rounders for him. And Delano Benton's got to be the equivalent of probably a, a lower end first rounder right now, just because the contract is shorter, even though it's super cheap. Uh, but he's been playing really well. Just disrupts defensively like he was supposed to, but he's given them Raptors secondary ball handler, puts real pressure on the paint that defenses are reacting to, finishing well inside and giving other guys on the Raptors time to work away from the ball just by being that that capable um, you know, ball carrier for them. I, I don't want to say free home. I'd like to see Rashad Holmes on a playoff team, though. He's been great for the Kings. The Kings deserve credit for bringing him in, giving him that role. Uh, the fact that they kept him, that's you know, kudos to them. Again, I was shocked that he cost that little. Uh, but he's the most underrated player in the NBA to me because I, I think it even was more proven in free agency where I think he should have been just higher up on teams' wish list. I know that maybe a lot of teams don't want to invest a ton in bigs who aren't stars or maybe who aren't top-tier defenders. I get it. He is so plug-and-play 
and scalable. And yet what he does just can't readily be matched. This isn't someone who's just an open floor finisher. You're not going to find a big who can just replicate his, his push shot. I still believe that he could probably stretch defenses out further if he was allowed to something that Sacramento hasn't really given him license to do or, or, or tried to have him do. And if you're just going to field a big who can play 30 plus minutes a game and is not going to hurt your defense. And if anything, he probably beat, look, the Raptors specifically, they're 29th in opponent field goal percentage of the rim. Rashawn Holmes probably helps their defense there. They do a good job of dissuading looks at the rim just because they are so disruptive on the perimeter. Uh, but he is someone who can actually help certain defenses. So he remains my most underrated player in the NBA, which I actually think is wild to say, because to me, he should be entering the Mike Conley territory of no, he's not on the same level of stardom as Conley, but he's been around this discussion for so long. It's time to graduate from it. And I still just don't think he is appreciated. Let's wrap up on this fun one. Uh, Atakan Mu asks, where's the goat Mario Hazonia? He is in Russia. He signed a two-year deal player option the second year to play in the VTG United league in Russia. If you're curious to see how he's faring, he one says that he likes everything in Russia and through 20 plus appearances, 19 starts, he's averaging almost 30 minutes per game. 16.2 points, 1.7 steals, shooting 26.5% from three, getting to the line, 4.2 attempts per, per game. Good for him. He's averaging more uh, more turnovers, 2.3, than assists per game, 1.9. Not the type of season that would make you think that he is coming back to the NBA anytime soon. Thank you to everyone who stuck with this solo mailbag. We'll be back with a two-person podcast later on this week. If you've made it this far, please remember to rate, review, subscribe to Hardwood Knocks, download all our episodes. Also tell your friends, family members, acquaintances, coworkers about us. Retweet our promos on Twitter. Anything to help us continue getting the word out about how pleasantly sub-mediocre we are. Until next time, I leave you with a shout-out to the one, the only, one of the most enduring underrated players in the NBA, Frank Nielakina. <laughs>